So I'm going to start today by sharing with you that I have come to understand over the years, and this may not shock you at all, that I am actually not good at some things. There are some things, I know, I know, I'll give you a minute just to get over the shock. (laughs) But there are some things that I've tried to do, and it doesn't matter what I try, I'm just not good at it. Anyone else have that experience? Yeah, oh, okay, I'm not alone, all right. (laughs) One of those things for me is drawing. I am terrible at drawing, self-confessed. Oftentimes I've found myself in situations, you know, at conferences or training courses or even gatherings where we're invited to reflect in different creative ways. And when one of those tasks is drawing, my automatic reaction is to do like this little insecure roll of the eyes, oh, great, And I even find myself immediately defending this shortcoming by announcing to anyone within earshot that I do in fact already know that my drawing is terrible. So don't judge me. You know, the stick figures come out at that point. But does anyone else know this feeling? Maybe it's not drawing. Maybe it's something else. uh, Cooking. Maybe it's reading or even working with computers these days. The forever changing computers. I know we can't be good at everything, but sometimes it can just feel like we haven't got what it takes. Now, when I was young, now this is going back a little bit, I had a favourite TV show that I often watched, and maybe it was out of my insecurity of being terrible at drawing, I don't know, or maybe it was just the funny characters. But I used to love Mr Squiggle. Do I know Mr Squiggle? I'm specifically not talking to the children because they'll have no idea. But if you don't know who Mr Squiggle is, I've got a picture, even though it's really terrible quality because it's that old. But that's Mr Squiggle there. And um, like basically he was some alien character who flew down on his rocket ship to create works of art, which is totally a normal thing. <laughs> he had a pencil for a nose and a grumpy and impatient blackboard who always kept Mr Squiggle to a deadline by saying, oh, hurry up. Is that right? Yep. And, and there, I think there was a snail too. Uh, there was a, yes, there was. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, um, Mr Squiggle would be presented with a canvas that had a very basic few lines, shapes or squiggles on it, probably something I could manage. And then he would create some sort of masterpiece with these very basic shapes and we would all be amazed at how he was able to make something out of nothing. Then he would pop back in his little rocket ship and blast off until next time. That part was pretty weird, but anyway. It was such a simple show, short with the same plot line and expected outcome, but there's something special about seeing what we may think is the impossible made possible, right? So, of course, today's scripture is a well-known story of exactly that, the impossible made possible. So we're going to be reading from Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21, and it's called Jesus Feeds the 5,000. So Matthew 14, 13 to 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. 
Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, so here we have the classic story of Jesus making the impossible possible. By now, Jesus is gaining some interest. People are hearing about him from all over and beginning to travel to see him, hear him preach. They're chasing after him so they can be healed. They don't fully understand him, but their curiosity is peaking and they just need to know who this guy is and what he's all about. So in this scene, Jesus is once again withdrawing to take a breather from his ministry. He is an incredible example at knowing the importance of rest and Sabbath. But this time, however, Jesus and his disciples had just received the news that their beloved John the Baptist had been murdered. No doubt a shocking blow and they would be in the midst of grief. So Jesus withdraws by boat into what the scripture says is a solitary place, but what can be translated as the wilderness or the desert. Basically, it's in some remote area where people don't usually go. Surely he can get some alone time there, but sure enough, the people follow him there too. They've travelled far away from where they came from, simply out of desperate desire to hear from this mysterious rabbi. Now Jesus being Jesus, he saw this large crowd and his auto-compassion switches on and he can't help but begin to interact with the crowd and doing what he does best, he begins to heal the sick and minister to them. As night begins to approach, the disciples are sensing a bit of an issue. They're in the middle of nowhere. There's thousands of people who have travelled on foot, obviously not thinking clearly about no one uh, because nobody stopped to think about packing a sandwich before they hit the road and now everyone's likely to go hungry. The disciples suggest to Jesus that perhaps they need to call it and send everyone on their way or at least to the closest villages to buy some food. But then Jesus, some might say unrealistically, commands the disciples to give the people something to eat. I think this would have been one of those, uh, could you repeat yourself please, Jesus, moments, because how on earth are they going to achieve this one? There's nothing quite like when your boss tells you to make something happen without rationally thinking through it's actually possible first. So politely, I'm sure, they highlight their situation that they only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Assuming that all 12 disciples are present in this scene, that means that there are 13 of them, including Jesus. Now, I've sat at a fair few dinner tables in my time, and if I quickly do the math, I feel like five loaves and two fish are barely going to satisfy half of them, let alone begin to feed the masses. Can you see it now? Here's one crumb for you, one crumb for you. You're satisfied? It's a well-known understanding now that while the scriptures say that there were about 5,000 men in this gathering, it is also understood that there were women and children present too. So who knows if we're talking about 10,000 or 15,000 people, maybe more. We just know that their situation and their task right then and there was impossible. But then Jesus steps in. He says, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. 
They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Somehow, Jesus makes the impossible possible. Suddenly, there's an abundance of food, so much food that there are 12 full baskets left over after everyone has had their share. Now, I want to spend some time unpacking this story, highlighting some key parts that are easy to gloss over because obviously the blaringly obvious detail is that somehow Jesus fed possibly up to 15,000 people with a handful of food. But no word of scripture is written by mistake. So when we look into the details, we can see more of what this story provides for us today. Today, we can look at both a personal challenge and a missional challenge within this miracle in the wilderness. As we reflect on the account of the feeding of the 5,000, again, it's in the details that we can unpack what is truly being said to us and how it applies today. It's no coincidence that this event happened in the wilderness. There are many prominent stories in scripture that occurred in the wilderness. Some most memorable include the Israelites enduring the wilderness in the Old Testament under the leadership of Moses. And of course, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert. This wilderness experience generally represents a time of need. In the desert, it wouldn't be long before we would be in need, right? It's not the ideal place for us to live and survival feels unlikely. This is the same concept as those times in life where we are not travelling so well. Times when we're struggling, even straying or rebelling from God can be times that we look back on and realise we had a wilderness experience. When in the depths of a wilderness experience, we are prone to turn to questions and about, about how we got, got there, how to survive it, and where even our help comes from. Essentially, the wilderness can challenge our understanding and beliefs of God's faithfulness and his provision to us. In the wilderness, we are weakened and we're vulnerable. In those times when we're struggling, where we are losing hope, rather than focusing on possibility, we start to concentrate on those shortcomings. It is, in fact, so easy to point out all the negatives when hope is deteriorating. When the bad news keeps coming in, or when you seem to be making mistake after mistake, when you feel like you're not good enough. When we turn to looking at our situation compared to others, that makes our situation look even worse, and the conclusion is that nothing can be done with our nothingness. The disciples struck down with grief of the recent news of John the Baptist, probably feeling like the last thing they want to do is be surrounded by people. No doubt there would be some fatigue physically and emotionally. No doubt there would be worldly thoughts creeping into their minds about the costs of ministry with Jesus. It was not an easy time. Then staring down at this pitiful amount of food for an extreme number of people, I can understand why they too felt like nothing could be done with their nothingness. I love how Jesus doesn't just go away and fix the problem himself. No, he once again uses this time of need, not only for the physical hunger of the people, but the time of need for his disciples, who were, they were feeling defeated and perhaps lacking in hope to show them how to respond in their wilderness. Before anything else, Jesus invites the disciples to refocus on God. It says he looks up to heaven and honours God as number one. Then he blesses the bread, acknowledging that God can and will provide all that is necessary for life. And then Jesus publicly displays his trust in God. 
as a result of this declaration of trust, despite the current circumstance, in the midst of the impossible, God makes a way and everyone is fed in abundance. You see, it takes an extra special kind of faith to be able to turn to God and trust in him when it all feels impossible. It's not a big faith, remember the mustard seed from last week. But this faith is about where you place it. To put your trust in Jesus during the highs, sure. But putting your trust in him when you're enduring the wilderness, that's when you'll see what he can really do. Rather than drawing away by concentrating on our nothingness, Jesus invites us to draw near to him, to put our trust in God and see how he can make the impossible possible. Just like Jesus commanding the disciples to feed the people, he also wants our participation too. Technically, Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. He asked the disciples to do it. First, by refocusing on the great provider God, trusting in him and blessing what they had in front of them. Then they were able to go out to the people and hand out an abundance of food to satisfy every single person with plenty of leftovers. As the church, are we not called to do the same? God entrusts us to be the body of Christ. We are to be the hands and feet of God's work here on earth. God does not work alone. He could, but he chooses not to. When we need it most, God will give us what we need to work for good. I'd like to think that we have all experienced this provision when faced with situations that we were unsure we could handle. Surely we've all walked down that hindsight road and realised that somehow God provided what you needed in that season. As the church body, it's easy for us to become overwhelmed with the work, especially in this day and age, where sharing the good news of God seems to be harder and harder, less acceptable, and with so much brokenness surrounding us, doesn't it all just seem impossible? However, this story shows us that when we work together, Just as the disciples did, as they followed Jesus, they had more than enough to complete the assignment. So if we can join together in unity and faithfulness, bringing what we have, no matter how small and insignificant our nothing that it may be, God will be with us. If we know that God loves and cares for every person on earth, then we know that God can break through even in the most unlikely places, when we join together seeking his good intentions for the world. In fact, if we read this significant story, understanding that it was necessary to set it in place that represents the wilderness and an overwhelming need, then the message seems clear that God is saying, especially when you feel like it can't be done, that is when you will see my provision in abundance. I think too often we want those unmet needs to go away, right? We want the difficulties and the hardships of life to just disappear so we can find relief, be on our merry way. We want our church to grow, our ministries to flourish. We want to see our leaders thriving and inspiring, our children engaging and developing. But it feels like it's never going to happen. Or worse even, we start looking at other churches and wishing we could be like them, better than them, or even just give up and go to them instead because it's all too hard. But let me repeat this again. Jesus didn't technically feed the 5,000. He fed the disciples and the disciples faithfully and obediently fed the 5,000 using the provision they were given. Yes, it was Jesus' miracle, but it was also a call to discipleship and passionate participation in the mission of God.
We can absolutely decide that the mission of God is too hard. It probably is. We can absolutely look at our small offering and call it nothing and wash our hands of responsibility. But Jesus transforms our humble offerings into more than we could have hoped or dreamed of. This is true in our personal lives as individuals and it's true of our church both here at Powerful Gardens and the global church. Jesus is calling us to dream bigger. Jesus didn't say, give those fish and loaves to me and I'll feed them. His first call was for the disciples to change their ideas about their own power to make change in the world. And remember, the masses were hungry. They were travelling in desperation out of hope for good news. They didn't know what that hope would come, what would come out of that hope. And we live in a world much the same now. Our neighbours are desperate for hope, even if they don't know where to get it from. But do we believe that we can do something? For the disciples or for us to believe we have nothing, the possibilities are potentially pretty small. I wonder how many times Jesus has directed us to give them something to eat and because of our own feelings of powerlessness or our own understandings that we have nothing to give, have we turned away from that command? Now, I know I said earlier that I'm a terrible drawer and in the grand scheme of things, drawing isn't really that important compared to what I've been talking about today. But to step back to that example for a minute, I'm actually not too bad at playing Pictionary. Has anyone played Pictionary before? You, have, you get a word and you have to draw it so the other person can guess what it is. Terrifying. But then I'm actually not too bad at it. I'm still able to use the small skills that I have in front of me to do something. And even if it's not a spectacular Picasso, I'm able to share a message. It wouldn't be a very fun game if I sat with my arms crossed refusing to play because my drawing talents were little. I'm not playing. I can still get a message across with what I have. I want to challenge us today as individuals, but also as a church family, to recognise that what we have in front of us right now is enough. Maybe as we look at our lives, maybe even as we look at our church, we may see only a few loaves and fish and it feels like nothing. But can I encourage you, if you're feeling defeated, discouraged or lacking in hope, to follow the example of what Jesus showed the disciples that day. First, we lift our eyes to heaven, acknowledging that God is number one. Above everyone and everything else, the great provider who cares for us. Second, we bless what we have. We count our blessings. We acknowledge and show gratitude for what is in front of us right now. And finally, we share God's provisions with others, passionately participating in the mission of God, hungry to witness the miracles of Jesus in our midst today, knowing that God wants us to be a part of the building of his kingdom. In a moment, we're going to sing together. As we share in worship, the words remind us that we have so many examples in Scripture of the power of Jesus. Not only do we read about these examples, though, we must also believe that we can see that same power at work today. Do you believe it? The words of the chorus say, that's the power of your name, and just a mention makes a way. Giants fall, and strongholds break, and there is healing. And that's the power that I claim. 
It's the same that rolled the grave and there's no power like the mighty name of Jesus. Today I invite you to consider this declaration for your life and for our church. May we claim the power of the name of Jesus, knowing that we are invited to be a part of his work, especially when we don't have enough.